This episode of A Conversation With is sponsored by In Search of the New Compassionate Male. For more information, visit newcompassionatemale.com. Hello world, it's me, Dennis, and I have a second opportunity to talk with Dr. James Crow, Jr. of Vanderbilt University. Dr. Crow, we first talked on April the 5th, 2020. It is now October 17th. Actually, it's the 18th, 2020. Wow. What has happened since then? What I, what I want to know is, uh, first of all, did you ever think that epidemiologists would become rock stars? Did you ever think when you were in medical school that suddenly there'd be posters of Dr. Fauci up? Uh, and and all? Did, did that ever occur to you? Wow, bobbleheads of uh, Dr. <laughs> Fauci. That, that was the uh, most surprising thing. Yeah, it's been um, amazing, weird uh, year in every way, and in uh, some ways, just a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, but I, I think for scientists, also an opportunity to use our skills to make a difference and uh, communicate with the world that we're down here in the trenches trying to do things all the time, and uh, there's a lot of opportunity for good in the scientific research that's been done. So I think having a voice for science is, yes. has been sort of the, the collateral benefit that's occurred. Sagan and, uh, and uh, Feynman and all this, they knew that. They knew yeah. this, 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 this is the, the basic stuff. We must communicate this out. All right. So tell me, since April the 5th, what have you what have you learned what has the scientific community learned about what, about this disease i know that one of the things that i'm learning if if i got this straight epidemiology is not just one discipline you have so many different specialties in that and your specialty is antibodies right right and that's what okay. you and your team are working on which is a subspecialty within ep- epidemiology's but you still keep up with all the what's going on in epidemiology in general, right? Well, yeah, you're talking about lumping and splitting, which is a thing in science. Um, <laughs> and um, I, I think if you go at a, at a higher level, mm-hmm. uh, there's biology. So we fit yeah. within biology. Medicine is sort of embedded within that, which is a, more like an applied biology. Got it. Um, and if you drill down a little uh, lower or next level, you can think of things like global health. Mm-hmm. Uh, which encompasses not only infectious diseases, but water and, and all sorts of things. Uh, so within global health, infectious diseases is one of the major drivers of mortality. But th- I mean, there's also cancer and sure. card- cardiac disease. So within medicine and global health, there's infectious disease. Infectious diseases is really interesting. And the coronavirus that we're experiencing um, is telltale about this, that it, infectious diseases can cut across all socioeconomic yes. and national boundaries in ways that uh, some of the other diseases don't so much. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of an equalizer in some way. Now, there are certainly more vulnerable populations, no question. Mm-hmm. And that's been one of the things that has come to fore, that people who are at high risk in general from a social, economic, or other health risk factors sure. have been especially vulnerable. But I think um, so we're we're working in the world of infectious diseases within global health, and then 
Uh, you use the word epidemiologist. I think those are people who study public health and things oh. that happen in public health. Got it. Um, and they're sort of the, they call out the warning signals, things are happening, <laughs> uh, or think, you know, hello, over here, there's uh, problems about to happen. Uh, and then uh, I work more in the world of virology, immunology, vaccines. Mm -hmm. uh, so the virus people are virologists. The people who study the host response, you know, on the other side are the immunologists. Uh, uh, and vaccine and antibody people try to play both sides of that game, learn viruses, learn the, the human response, and then use that information to make things like antibodies or vaccines or antiviral drugs. So, so what do you know now? What have you learned? Some of the things that you have learned since we talked on April the fifth that your team has been researching the, the kinds of of work that we're that we're doing. And I, I just I encourage anyone to listen to your first podcast because I learned so much about what we can do and where some of the limitations are, but just pick us up from there and, and tell us what you've been learning and where your team there at Vanderbilt has been going and, and how you've been communicating around so that we can get some sense of uh, where we are and what, what is the state of antibody research and what is the state of COVID uh, and our response to it today. Yeah, well, we've learned a tremendous amount and a lot has uh, got, been done in the research fields that's been successful. Uh, I don't think we anticipated, at least the, on the, the researchers, did not anticipate the the rapidity of being able to discover things and test them in clinical trials. That's never been done before. And I think one of the things I've learned that's um, very telling is if we put enough money into this, uh, we could solve a lot of these problems much more quickly. So oddly, uh, right in the middle of all this, I I was in uh, Italy trying to trying to do a sabbatical starting in February when this thing blew up, Good and luck. I, I had to to leave Italy, which became an epicenter. Uh, and oddly, right in the middle of that, I was supposed to go to London uh, for a meeting on flu because flu pandemic preparedness has been going on for decades. We know avian influenzas have crossed over the human population. Uh, have done that numerous times throughout history and are going to do that again. So everybody's been getting ready for the big flu pandemic. And the flu pandemic meeting got canceled because of the COVID pandemic, because all the people who would work on flu were off doing COVID. And, um, but then uh, we just had uh, the, the Welcome Trust just started having that meeting that was supposed to happen in February. They've been having them this past two weeks. And of course, they're virtual and they're broken up. And essentially what I realized over about a 12-hour series of meetings on flu was there's just not enough money in the system to do what we need to do to solve flu. But there is enough money basically in the COVID system. So you see uh, all sorts of clinical trials, antivirals, antibodies, vaccines of all types, and they're being tested. And that doesn't mean they're all going to work, but we're going to figure out which things do and don't work so fast within one year uh, it just shows us a model of what could be done if we put enough money. And people are saying, oh, it's billions of dollars, except for on COVID, we're going to spend $15 trillion yes. as, a, as a people. So the amount that we're spending on the COVID research and trials is still tiny. It's just a yes. little dot inside the economic cost. So I'm just wondering, I mean, the light bulb even went off for me. There's not enough money in the system. 
we've not had the political will to do this stuff. Will we have it now or we will go back to business as usual next year? And I still don't think people get that we have it within our grafts to prevent these things and treat these things, but we just don't have the will typically yeah. under normal circumstances to make the investment. Well, th- isn't this that when, when you and I have talked about unintended consequences, like when we went for the moonshot, so many, so much technology got invented because we ha- were going for there. So are you, are you saying that, that we are, we're going to be having a lot of unintended uh, benefits that scientists could use from this approach to COVID that could I- end up solving problems that we don't even know that we're, uh, we're able to solve? Absolutely. I mean, the the entire uh, genre of infectious disease prevention and treatment is beta testing various crazy ideas right now, and some of them are going to work. Um, we also, by pressure testing the system, what if you flushed in enough research money that you had solutions, and we're going to see some of the stuff work. Now we're realizing there's not enough world manufacturing capacity to make this stuff. Yeah. And if we could make it, we do not have the public health infrastructure to distribute this stuff, or how do we decide who's going to get a vaccine and and we're going to have social strife over prioritizing people. And so we're pressure testing systems that uh, aren't adequate to the task. Those systems are going to grow in capacity, knowledge. We're going to do after action reviews and say what went right, what went wrong. And, and uh, we've never, done testing in the public at this kind of scale. So flu is going to benefit. Uh, all sorts of pneumonia and respiratory illnesses are going to benefit from this. Um, so I, I hope that we we don't just go back to our complacency right. uh, and say, well, that's not going to happen again. I'm glad that's over because this isn't ever going to be over. With no. the way the world works now, epidemics and pandemics are going to continue to occur every 12 to 18 months. So we need to get ahead of this. All right. Can we go historical back to the Spanish flu? Because I know you've studied that and I've known what lessons from that are applicable today. Well, that's been really interesting. People have gone back and um, in the, in the 2009 pandemic, there was a lot of interest because it was uncertain. This 2009 H1N1 flu right. was, ac- was actually 1918 that came back from pigs yes. and birds, which was crazy. Uh, and people started reading, well, what did people do that worked? And you could compare a city that locked down and a city that did not and uh, closing schools or um, all those sorts of things that we're grappling with now. So people have been reading the history and you see... Um, also, even people who are not scientists wrote a lot of major uh, books, Pale Rider, mm-hmm. um, uh, John Barry's book on influenza. There are a lot of major uh, books that were written by writer writers, not scientists, yeah. that were a lot better communication than scientists typically do to sort of document what was done in flu. And, um, you know, I think one of the core things is is still we're, we're uh, in our country, ambivalent about six feet and about wearing a mask, mm-hmm. I got my temperature checked uh, to come up to my office about 10 minutes ago. I answered mm-hmm. some questions. Those things work. And yet we're, we're still sort of resisting them. And if you look back at 1918, they didn't have drugs. They didn't have vaccines. They didn't have antibiotics. They didn't have ICUs. They didn't have anything. So the only things you could implement were things like distancing right. uh, that did work. And, I, and I, it's sort of uh, unfortunate that we're not able you know, as a people to implement that, because that's very, very powerful. If you're 10 feet away, you're not going to get it right. 
So yeah. So so all right. Help, help me to understand the the one of the things that happened. One of the words that we keep hearing uh, now uh, coming out is herd immunity. Yeah. Help me to understand how did this the pandemic was in uh, the Spanish flu, which I just learned that the only reason why it was named the Spanish flu was because uh, Spain were the only free press. Everybody else was censoring the press. So they're the ones that put it out there. That's why it was called the Spanish flu. Right. Anyhow. So, so if we, if we're going to um, deal with how did it die out? How did it, it, we're 1918, 1919, and then it went out. Was that an example of herd immunity? Right. Well, first of all, am I even don't... asking a better question? And again, let me let me start with the Spanish because start me help me out. Yeah, yeah. The uh, scientists don't call the nineteen eighteen pandemic Spanish flu. They call it nineteen eighteen H one N one influenza. Thank you. Because we we try to stay away from attributing uh, viruses to certain countries, and that's even an issue in a current thank pandemic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Continue do that. Yeah. So the 1918 H1N1 influenza uh, probably came directly from birds into people. And um, a lot of the earliest cases were probably in the United States. Of course, it was World War One, mm-hmm. And so people living close together, uh, if you drop one case in there, the transmission from person to person was quite high. And so as long as you were closely spaced and not distance, you were at risk. So you saw army barracks blow up and, and every person got infected. So that was part of the thing with 1918. It was so infectious. There's, there's an, actually an R value that you can calculate a statistic. How many cases does one person cause in people around them? And if it's below one, then the epidemic will die out. But if each person infects more than one person, then the epidemic will grow. And when you think about it, it's pretty intuitive. But uh, epidemiologists spend a lot of time counting people (laughs) and cases and which test are you using, PCR or antigen or culture. So that number is not trivial to come to. But if you know that number and it gets above one uh, and people are close enough uh, you know, essentially within six feet, then you will have a big epidemic. So in 1918, I think the numbers, uh, as best people could estimate, were that 95% of people got infected in the first two years. Um, and so the, the second year was not necessarily better. In fact, it was worse in many areas. You had a first flush. And then the, the second wave that people talk about in 1918 was actually the second. There was, there was two waves within a year, but the second year was actually worse. Uh, and then you sort of saw the disease uh, trending downward till, you know, the 1930s or so on. So sure. uh, the first two years were big. Then you developed um, population immunity. And, and actually, we're going to stop using the word herd immunity. Thank you. Uh, because herd immunity... Uh, typically is applied to things like pigs. Sure. Uh, and it's it's just not a favorable term. This is what we've used for exactly. decades. But in the current, current outbreak, we're going to use things like community immunity. Um, and and uh, so after two years, the community, 95% of people have been infected. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, what happened then and what happens probably now, what will happen with COVID is, that the protection we get will not be 100% against infection. It's not that you will never be infected again. But what will happen is you have a certain level of immunity 
that will protect most of your body. In fact, the most vulnerable part of your body during a coronavirus infection uh, is your lungs. So if the virus proceeds down and infects your airway in your lungs and you can't breathe, and, and that gives you a serious problem. Yes. If the virus stays up in your upper airway, which would be above your vocal cords, then if you have a sore throat, a runny nose, cough, sneezing, uh, eyes, ears, that kind of thing, typically that's not going to kill you. So your body uh, will invest a certain amount of the immune response to protect you against fatal disease, but not worry so much about trying to protect every common cold that you'll ever get. And so what you see with 1918 flu and all flus actually is the first round or two, you're more susceptible to severe disease like pneumonia. Mm -hmm. And then after you've had it once, twice, three times, then you may get infected and have no symptoms at all, just have a little bit of virus, or you get a little bit of a cold symptom complex, but that's okay. And I think that's our goal now is to prevent severe disease, prevent death from pneumonia, uh, but not try to prevent all infections because it's not feasible for these viruses. Right. So we we know that from flu. We know that from RSV, the most common cause of infection in babies. Even adults still get it. Uh, but they don't get pneumonia. They don't go on a ventilator. They don't die uh, yeah. from the infection. So that's the goal right now when we look at these other infections. We want to get enough immunity by vaccination or antibodies or by natural infection as a group where – uh, we will reduce the amount, the number of infections. When you do get an infection, you won't have so much virus. You'll have a little bit of virus. And then the R number will go down because you won't transmit to two people. You'll only present, transmit to one or less. And that coupled with distancing will also run the R number down. And then it'll just become a common cold. That's what everyone predicts. All right. So where do where what are people hearing when you look at the news media? Do you feel like that we're doing a good job of getting the information out there? Are, are, are people getting uh, is it clear? Are you shaking your head and saying, oh, listen, this is not getting out there and it needs to be pounded in more? How are we doing there? Well, it's complicated. Uh, I think I I had a feeling it was the first uh, thing I would say about that. This this is the first epidemic that I've seen that has been so political. Mm -hmm. So uh, to say that you don't want to wear a mask for kind of political freedom impulses reminds me of, I don't want to wear a seatbelt because it's my body. Uh, But if you rack and go into the burn center and the ICU, neuro ICU, and our society has to pay $2 million to right. <laughs> pull you back from death. Actually, you're in my space now because I'm paying for that insurance too. Absolutely. Uh, and could you please just wear your seatbelt? So seatbelts, helmets for motorcycle riders, yes. uh, all this kind of thing have been politicized in the past when in fact, I mean, really, they're just public health measures to yeah. um, to try to protect individuals in the population. So I think we're suffering right now because people, you know, maybe rightly so, want to have a discussion about who is the proper uh, entity to tell you what to do. And yes. uh, I, I don't think, uh, if you look at the, the approach China took, and again, you have kind of a political thing, Chinese sure. government saying, United States government doesn't know what they're doing, they're stupid, and they can't, you know, they're ineffective, you should do it like we do. Well, yeah, but they had police uh, blocking roads and locking people into a city and houses and 
uh, that is not something I can contemplate in the United States no. using military, military uh, isolation. So we're, we're sort of having a political discussion about this more than a public health discussion, because I sure. think it, it's just no brainer if you're not next to somebody infected, yeah. you won't get infected. And if you're next to them, there's some risk. Uh, and, it, you know, with COVID, the transmission is quite high. So pretty good chance if you're near somebody who's infected, you'll get infected. And so I don't think it's a public health no. issue, really. And if you say that the evidence is not clear, then you're probably speaking from a political viewpoint. So when so w- as you're looking at the numbers here uh, in, in late uh, mid-October, uh, as you're watching the numbers increase, nationally do you watch the numbers the way uh, a baseball junkie watches the eras uh, of uh, certain uh, <laughs> what do you look at it as a, a as a doctor yeah i to be honest i mean we're working up here <laughs> i'm i'm we... sorry i'm busy i'm I, i'm i'm trying to find that one little that one little cell that has the magic <laughs> exactly so um we actually don't pay too much attention to the day-to-day uh, because in, in my group, we're essentially basic scientists who do translational solutions. Right. So we're not, we're not responsible for, I, I, I'm not responsible and my laboratory is not responsible for the conduct of our medical center, our city, our County. There are people here and that's their job. And they're working yeah. very hard on that. They keep up on every little case. Uh, I get a, a newsletter in my inbox from the children's hospital here the adult hospital and the information's in there. We have four cases here and 10 in the ICU. And yes. I just, I just have to filter it out because um, uh, we've been doing a lot of um, uh, what I call meta working in our group. And that is there's so much activity in the modern world. Uh, the constant connectivity, the culture of the internet, and we've embedded it in our system. We use Slack to communicate with each other, for instance, messaging, you know, I'm getting several hundred emails a day. We have, um, you know, link people in LinkedIn are communicating with, there's so much coming. And uh, this was so important and so intense to work on. We, we sort of uh, started talking about how are we working? And that's what I call meta working. We were working about working and we decided. So recently we said no meetings on Wednesdays. We just, we just can't meet. And people are like, how can we have an entire day and not meet? There's too much to do. Uh, and when I just said, no, we're not going to be on Wednesdays because we're going to work. Uh, and then people, once we did it, they said, could we have two days to work? <laughs> uh, and so we try to stay out of the, you know, the day-to-day yeah. and do what um, Cal Newport wrote a whole book, you know, deep work. Like you need uninterrupted time to do hard things, uh, not distractions, not easy things that you can do in two minutes, but to sit down and the type of data that we're looking at sometimes is very complex. So we're, we're actually trying to isolate ourselves from some of the noise. Oh. Uh, and it, it's a little counterintuitive because. No, I, I, I don't think press. it is. When, when, when I, when I, work, I'm, I also, I do communication coaching, which is what is supporting this podcast and the rest of the things I'm doing. But, but I'm finding exactly the same thing, death by meeting and watching <laughs> it to completely take over people's mind and t- so that they're not doing the deep work. Thank you. I'm going to take that. You, you see, you're going to spread that. You, you're already spreading. I mean, infection can be spread ideas as implanted as memes, as implanted as uh, can, can spread that way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm obsessed with trying to think about 
uh, how to be effective, not just do stuff, not just do activities. And, um, you know, the, uh, you know, my, one of my favorite, um, books, I, I keep ruminating on, uh, the book flow, uh, yeah. uh, which is a very, very deep book about, um, uh, optimal human experiences and how do you, um, how do you experience, I mean, you could put different words on it, joy, meaning yeah. uh, in life. And uh, a lot of us have this sort of model, like if I could relax, I would just enjoy it. If I could just sit there and relax, I'd be so much happier. And um, it's actually not true. Having mm-hmm. a, a task, doing what you were meant to do in the way that you were meant to do it and stretching uh, just beyond your current capabilities <laughs> actually is very invigorating to people and very exciting and meaningful. Absolutely. And when we don't have that, I see, taking a bit of a tangent, but I see the suicide and depression being exactly that place. I know certainly it is with me. Anytime that I'm out of my, when I feel I'm purposeless, if we took about a tank, you know, if we say purposeful, right here is all the way down to purposeless. I can watch my tank. When my tank is going down, and I'm and I'm losing that connection to purpose. Everything else is tainted. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, another thing that I've been thinking a lot about in the midst of all this uh, craziness is sure. um, just the joy. Uh, as a scientist, one of the things that's most meaningful is just knowing how things work. Yes. And so we will spend months chasing molecules and, and using technology. And, and some of that's fun. It's like you're running toys. We have $2 million toys here that we, yeah. we run robotic things. And that, that the process is fun. But when you get to the end and you see how things work and uh, you're, you're pulling back the curtain and you're, you're seeing uh, how it really is. And so an antibody that we discover that we might use as a drug, it, it also – it's a very particular uh, antibody, but I, I think of it sort of, uh, there's a chapter in Plato's Republic about uh, forms. And so the, the, the model is you're watching a, a shadow play and the real world is behind you and you're looking at a wall of shadow puppets and, and Socrates is trying to say, if you would just turn your head around, there's a real world that's deeper than the one thing you're looking at. So, um, you know, you can think of a chair, you, you own a chair, but chair is a concept. It's a device that you sit on yes. and chairs can have so many shapes and sizes and it's very enjoyable to make new chairs. Um, well, I, I think of antibodies that way. We've, we find a particular one and we learn how it works, but those are also members of a class or a form. They're platonic forms. And we learn from that and learning, not just, I got the one, okay, I have the one and it's going to fix the virus but understanding uh, how it works, its shape. Uh, these are like, you know, I have on my desk, I have little things I play with, yes. uh, three di- three dimensional structures. Hold them up for uh, us. Yeah. So, um, you know, you have antibody molecules that will mm-hmm. come in and, and grab onto a virus. And we like to look in there and they go, oh, that's a little sugar on the virus. And this is protein. And this thing has to <sighs> sit right down in there and the shape has to be perfect. <sighs> so, this is a very beautiful little sculpture, but it, it, it actually points to, uh, you know, for me, I, the way I yeah. experience it, it points beyond the physical 
And, you know, there's sort of a metaphysical yep. uh, axis to the way the world is. And a lot of times, I, I think after the, after the Enlightenment and Descartes, you know, that that fueled a lot of science and yep. a lot of dem- democratic uh, benefits that we all have. Yep. But also it sort of uh, erased the idea of the metaphysical world. I was like, it's all here, all <laughs> physical. And uh, I don't experience it that way. I think when we're discovering yeah. as scientists, we see these physical things, we get our hands on them, but then in our mind, we're understanding uh, what they do and how they work. And, and these are just uh, signs or pointers to That's an wonderful. entire so, universe. Yeah. So there are more things in heaven and earth that are accounted for in your philosophy, Horatio? <laughs> <laughs> well, I i mean, I have different, uh, sure, philosophical views and um and so on, but I'm just telling you what it's like to be a scientist. Oh God, to that's enjoy wonderful. the discovery. You know, to, that, that is to... exactly what I want. All right, so what are we learning? I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask you is: is that what is the evolutionary purpose of a virus? Yeah, that's a, that's kind of an existential question. <laughs> I mean, it, it uh, is an organism, right? I mean, it lives. It it wants to. Progress. It doesn't want to kill its host. I mean, I think of the human beings on the planet. If we kill the planet. It's gonna kill us. So we have some yeah. we, we have some uh incentive to keep the planet alive. Does yeah. the virus have any incentive uh evolutionarily or is it just a destructive what's the Yeah, that's a that's a hard question. I think so first of all, viruses are not alive. They don't live independently, they only uh replicate when they're inside a cell okay so people especially virologists will correct you or, or sometimes will say our antibodies if i if i'm speaking to a lay audience i might say well the antibodies kill the virus but you know if they kill that implies they're alive <laughs> and every every time i say that i think of uh um vince rack who runs uh, a podcast uh, this week in virology, Twitter. It's very popular in scientists. Virologists listen to yes. this. And I did this with him one time. And I said that. I said, well, you know, our antibodies kill the virus. And he, he sort of chuckled. He said, kill? kill. <laughs> because, because the entire virology world does not agree they're alive. So uh, viruses are genes, DNA or RNA, right. that replicate. And they are covered in other molecules, which are proteins and sugars and lipids. And so they're just self-replicating genomes. They're not alive. Um, our mind, to make sense of this stuff, anthropomorphizes. And sure. you just said it. What do they want to do? What are they trying to do? But they yeah. don't have any intention because they're not even alive. Um, what happens, though, is if a virus um, – uh, delivers the payload, which is the gene, mm-hmm. it essentially tricks, you know, the cell is tricked. It sees a gene, it copies a gene, it makes more of it, and then the virus self-assembles and comes back out. And so, <sighs> in some ways, the, the the human is facilitating this. We're sort of yeah. co- codependent here because sure. it's, it's typically, it's or it's not always, but it's often the human enzymes that make our own genes that go over and copy the virus. Um, so, um, I don't think you can talk about the purpose of viruses or, uh, or their intention. They're, 
they're self-replicating molecules. Um, right. And what you can use to use kind of a Darwinian concept is the ones that replicate, you know, the genomes that replicate better mm-hmm. tend to survive and be selected. So I think selection is a term, self-replicating genomes. Thank you that make more copies, they tend to promulgate. Mm -hmm. But there's different ways to do it. And you asked uh, about, is it more successful for a virus to kill off the human population or not? And there's viruses that do it both ways. So Ebola is 80% lethal in most Mm -hmm. settings. And it's a pretty successful virus. It's been around for decades. It's percolating around. Uh, in the um, forest in Congo right now, there's even mm-hmm. cases going on. Whereas then you have a virus like human papillomavirus, which causes no symptoms at all when you have it, it's sexually transmitted. Uh, but then 20 years later, you have cervical cancer or penile cancer, or you can have a oropharyngeal cancer. And so does the virus want to cause cancer? No, it's just replicating Got it. one, of the, one of the side effects. But these are different lifestyles, no symptoms or... Uh, a hemorrhagic fever within three days and the person's dead. Both of those can be successful for a virus. So ah. it's, it's, not, it's not that they're trying to do things to people. They're being Got selected it. based on their replication. And, um, yeah. All right. So that, the, thank you for clarifying that for me because I, I, I did not understand that and still barely do. Uh, but that's that's the lovely part about having this recorded, as I can re-remind myself by going back and listening to it again. So where are we, as, as you look out right now, what is your team, what is their, their uh, do they have the same, the same uh, excitement about what's going on right now? I mean, are you seeing some advances in the antibody research that, that you guys are doing that is sparking you to say, oh, here's, here's a good direction to go in? Well, so we started in trying to make COVID antibodies, SARS-CoV-2 antibodies, uh, about the third week of January. We studied mm-hmm. the first case in the United States, first known case in Seattle. Uh, and then we worked very hard. My team, uh, a subset of the team was up here 20 hours a day from January till about May and then <laughs> took a day off. So it was a very intense uh, we call that a sprint. Mm-hmm. You just you're going all out. You're putting everything you can to this one focus goal, was to get a set of antibodies that would inhibit SARS-CoV-2, and uh, it, it was very exhilarating and exhausting and frustrating. And uh, somewhere around um, the middle of April, I think about April 14th, we started handing off the lead antibodies that we identified as the best. We made mm-hmm. about 3,000, yeah. and we sort of whittled it down. We said. Okay, we have about uh, 15 or 20 that look like they would do the job. And we started offering them to various commercial parties who could manufacture and test them. And the most successful so far has been we handed a set to AstraZeneca, which is a pharma company. And they had the wherewithal to uh, convert these into a manufacturing scale um, uh, attempt. And from April till... Uh, sometime in August, they worked to make sure this stuff could be made cleanly, manufactured to scale, work with the FDA, and so on. And then they've uh, embarked on clinical trials. So clinical trials are phase one, which is safety. Does it hurt people or not sure. in a small group of people? The second is you go to a couple hundred people and start figuring out what dose should we use to get the effect we're looking for. 
And then you, you do what's called a phase three or an efficacy trial, which is where you ask, does it work? Of course, while you're making a large trial, you're also looking, is it safe? But you're really asking at that point, does it work? And that's where we are now. So AstraZeneca has announced that they've, they've gotten to phase three trials with antibodies that we made up here in March uh, and gave them in April. They moved very, very fast. Uh, there's, uh, I think, three other companies that in parallel were doing similar work. So Regeneron, Lilly, Veer, there may be one or two others. Um, so everybody was just going as fast as they could to get into trials. And uh, for us, it was the first time, we're an academic group. I, you know, I live in a university right. medical center. I'm not a company. Um, I work with graduate students and postdocs, and, and we usually try to discover principles. We're not really a, a drug-making company. Right. Um, uh, but we realize the way we do this the things we make could be used for drugs if we would just hand them to uh, to companies, and usually that's slow going. But um, I've lived through uh, H5N1 flu and SARS and chikungunya and Ebola, uh, Zika, and every time we kept making antibodies, but we were just a little bit too late to hand to companies during the the uh, the emergency. And so we, every time we, afterwards, we say, we got the best antibodies. How come our antibodies aren't being used in the clinical trials? And that's because we're just a little bit too late. So we just faster, 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 faster. <laughs> and I think this is the first time for us, we did it fast enough that we could hand to a company, you know, literally they started in the middle of April working on things that are being tested now. If we'd have been as late as May, it would have been too late. So I think, uh, there's speed and quality, and you got to have both wow. if you're going to have an effect on an epidemic. You can't just have the best molecules if you're too late. So we learned a lot the last couple of years about how to speed things up, and this was a this was just a, an unanticipated test. How fast can you go? And uh, wow, we learned pretty fast, actually. Did you do? Do we know anything about the reinfection rate? I mean, if we get this once, am I protected? Do we know anything about that? Can you tell anything about that during your your studies? Well, so we, when we take uh, white blood cells out of a person, discover the genes for an antibody, we can study that in the lab in animals. So we can say if I give a high level or a medium level mm-hmm. or a low level of antibodies, does the animal get infected? And you can use small animals, sure. mice hamsters. We've even done monkey studies. And we can sort of define there is a level of antibody. If you have that level, if we give that to the animal, they don't get infected at all. Nothing, not even in their nose. Um, so we know antibodies are sufficient. And that is a very important principle that then we can take to clinic. Now, uh, people have all sorts of differences and risk factors. So sure. Uh, the the level of antibody that we know should work based on animal studies might not work in every person, mm-hmm. but we know the goal approximately where we need to be with a vaccine or an antibody. If you look at uh, individuals who've been naturally infected in the community and they have very high levels of antibody, uh, it looks like they are relatively protected from severe disease. Right. Um, if you turn the question around and say, has anyone ever been infected and then infected again? Has anybody ever proven that? And there's there's a few cases now, I mean, like two or three cases where this has been proven. Sure. So if you were infected in March 
and you still have virus in August, that's not enough. You have to sequence to the two viruses and show that they're different, that the first one didn't just kind of hang around. And so that's been done a couple of times. People have had clearly two different SARS-CoV-2 strains. Sure. So you, you definitely can be reinfected, uh, but there is a level of immunity that will yeah. protect you. And then now we're going to find out there's a lot of uh, efficacy or phase three trials with vaccines and antibodies that are going to finish October, November. And we're going to understand in a population that's an outbred population with lots of medical differences and different lifestyles, exactly. uh, will that level of protection that we know to work in animals, will it work in people? And, yeah. and I suspect we will see some very successful uh, or at least moderately successful vaccines and that antibodies will also do the job. So I, I'm pretty optimistic that we're going to have solutions by the end of the year. And and this thing of going back to normal, the idea of forgetting, how quickly would we forget this experience so that we would lose the lessons that we are getting by having this? I mean, I know, I know what I'm, what I'm trying to, you know, as a 72 year old man, I'm sitting here going, okay, well, I'm going to continue my, my, the modalities, my social distancing, wearing a mask, I wear gloves when I go out to the store. Uh, and, and, and then I dispose of the gloves when I get back into the car. So anything that I might have touched and try to, we do a complete disinfectant when we, when we come home, every package gets uh, wiped down, all, uh, all, all the food. I mean, we're continuing that. We're not, we don't know when that should end or how should we, I mean, I, I've literally touched, other than other than uh, my wife Melissa, I've literally touched only two people, and that was two elbow bumps in the last six months. Yeah. So you want to know when is that going to be over? No, I, I, I know you can't answer that, and I know that's yeah. not what I meant. I mean, but that's just what, this is what we're doing, and so your, yeah. your sense of it. I don't even know you have children, right? I, I do, yeah. And, and so, I have adult how, children. <laughs> so, so how you're thinking about it as uh, as a father, as a as a uh, as a scientist? I mean, uh, can, can you can you let me into uh, to your your thoughts? Yeah. So, I people ask me all the time, "When do you think we're going to be back to normal?" I, I just not, to give I'm... you a, I give you a, an example of. <laughs> Uh, who's particularly interested? So I, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, yep. which is uh, sometimes called Music City. So, uh, in fact, uh, one of the uh, most amazing uh, philanthropic gifts that's come to Vanderbilt in the last few years, Dolly Parton, who lives here, uh, gave a million dollars to Vanderbilt to support COVID research. Um, and we got some of that money very early on, which is very meaningful to our team to just be able to launch in without worrying about it. Uh, so the music industry is big here in entertainment. And so a lot of that industry has been asking us and asking me, when are we going to have stadium events where our entertainers are going to sing to 30,000 people? Um, and if that never happens, that whole industry could just end, you know, right. not just the events, but music uh, in our country, the production of music, that whole industry could end. So I, I don't take it lightly what, uh, I don't think you can predict exactly, but I, if you want my real answer, if you look at 1918, 1957, 1968 flu, even the 2009 pandemic was a small one. I think 70,000 people died in the mm -hmm. U.S. 
Um, that played out for two or three years. This is much larger. So I'm guessing this is going to take probably five years till we get enough uh, penetration of vaccines right. and antibodies or herd immunity. And population, to, population immunity. Yeah. Um, be, uh, before it's kind of normal. So I, we're probably looking at several years like this. Right. Um, on, on the other hand, you're asking me as a, as a father, uh, my wife and I have been uh, fairly cohorted, but there's also just the whole mental health um, cost of what's going on for the whole world, really. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, we, are, we are an entire emotional, physical, spiritual, purposeful uh, being. We're, we're not just, just... – Yeah. So we, we've been trying to, uh, to get out and run, hike – uh, outdoor stuff. Uh, and we made the decision as a family in the middle of all this to travel uh, by airplane uh, to Texas to see um, our kids. And uh, we visited with them for a weekend just because the, the dysphoria of, I, I mean, I didn't get a COVID break of any kind, right? I, mm-hmm. I evacuated from Italy, got here on the ground, was locked in my house and running a discovery program from two blocks away from my work <laughs> for months. And there wasn't, there weren't work days and, you know, weekends. No. I mean, this was just all out. And so we were, we were just experiencing the same just for everybody else was, but maybe even more yeah. kind of intense because of the workload oh, God, uh, yes. and uncertainty. So we, we chose to go visit our children. So, you know, I had an N95 mask, which, uh, I've worn as a healthcare provider. I'm a physician. When we go into a patient's room with an N95 mask, we don't intend to be in there more than about 10 or 15 minutes because mm-hmm. it's very difficult to breathe. If you have a, a fitted N95, yep. you're not leaking it. I mean, if you really wear it, wow, I wore it the whole time in the airport, in the airplane. So I knew I wasn't going to get infected, but it was just very difficult. So we sort of created a pod with our family for a weekend. And uh, I think the benefits for us over that nine month period or whatever it's right. been were enormous and it was worth the risk. And um, I knew we weren't infected. We were not a risk to others and we were wearing our N95. So I think, mm-hmm. and in fact, I have a family member. We took one other trip, a family member who um, uh, both immediate family members have cancer right now and have very, very difficult situations. One has yeah. a stem cell transplant uh, with daily treatments. And with both of them having treatments at the same time, they were having logistical problems because it's not the same clinic. It's not even the same hospital. So we traveled to um, just help take care of them for 10 days. I was working remotely while helping them out. Same thing. We were wearing, wearing N95, washing, 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 distancing, uh, but, you know, cooking in their home and that sort of thing. So I think uh, the idea that you could never touch or visit a person no. for five years is not going to be plausible. It wasn't for us. Uh, but I think doing the maximal you can do when you commit, I'm going to do this family event or this contact. I am going to, it's not following the rules. It's just not being stupid. Exactly. Think about for your, yourself and the other person. It's not anybody's rule. It's like do what is known to work. And that's what we try to follow. And that, it's not because anybody's going to catch us or watching us because we don't no. want to get infected. We don't want to, I mean, you can imagine, I do not want to hurt my, 
my immediate relative who has cancer. That is not why of I'm there. I'm there not. to help them. So I want to do maximal. I think if you think about it that way, then it's not a rule. It's just doing what's smart. Absolutely. And that's what I want to do. I want to, I want to be able to do that. And I, and I want to stay connected on, on, on where we're going in this. All right. What, what in these last few minutes, what have we not talked about that, that you need to, that you want to say, or, or you want to make sure and, and, and share or something I have not even, even touched upon? Well, I think, um, you said at the beginning, you were talking about uh, the celebrity scientist, Dr. Yeah. Fauci. Yeah, others. exactly. Uh, <laughs> the poster, uh, the bobblehead. I, um, at, at some level, I don't trust that a little bit because I think, <laughs> you know, Andy Warhol's prediction is that's only 15 minutes. Yep. Um, so I, I think the public's attention in that celebrity way is very yeah. fickle and, and maybe not that meaningful. No, but I, I do I think uh, shining a light into the world of science and seeing that how many scientists um, are so dedicated mm-hmm. and spend so many, I, we're not talking about just hours, spend decades studying one little thing that enables others to put all the pieces together and just the curiosity and wonder about how the world works can then be turned toward the public good. I mean, that's what science is. And uh, I think there's been a lot of weird distrust in science. In fact, most acutely on vaccines, particularly in the United States and and some of the other Western countries, people, uh, when polio, and and there's there's a lot of great history around polio vaccine, when, when polio was causing paralysis in people throughout the summers in the 1950s, yeah. people demanded a solution. And when Salk and Sabin got the vaccine, people lined up on the block and said, I want that. I don't want you to run out. You should give me priority. I want that for my kid. People demanded uh, and lauded, the, not the individuals, but the effort. We're yes. all in this together and doing a good thing. And and science did solve that. I mean, polio is going to be eradicated from the world because of what Salk and Sabin and their teams did. And then the March of Dimes uh, raised the money. It was philanthropy. I mean, and the philanthropy came from the public. So the yes. public supported. It was not looking it was to the government. Exactly. And so people demanded a solution, and they paid for it themselves, and they participated in it. And polio uh, was eradicated from the, yeah. the United States and now throughout the world. That's what this should look like. We should yep. not be talking weird uh, thoughts about um, uh, the stuff that has just been this weird black halo cloud around vaccines. Right. And I, I'm not the person to fix it, but I think it's just very unfortunate. And I think COVID maybe, you know, maybe we'll put a little crack in that if we have some successful vaccines that allow us to go back, not to normal, but to just get out with our families and go to work. Yep. go to church, the things that people realize now they miss, you know, maybe they complained about their, their various organizations. Now they miss <laughs> them and realize that the connectedness you had um, at your work or place of worship or your recreational thing that were just, that was the most meaningful thing you had. Um, you want to get back to that. I think vaccines uh, also the type of antibody interventions we're trying to do will enable that. And I'm hoping that, uh, the public will connect to that. And I think 
you have some, like in the vaccine space, you have some disinformation people who have alternate reasons for, I mean, they, they have gain for being who they are and saying what they do. Uh, and then you have people uh, who have no skepticism and say, sure, shoot me, shoot me up with anything. And I think <laughs> probably 80, 90% of the country's in the middle and just exactly. wants good information, doesn't want to hurt their children or themselves, doesn't want to be stupid and just say, uh, yeah, whatever, I'll, I'll take whatever. They want to be critical thinkers, exactly. but they need good information. And I, and I think this might be a chance where we explain, uh, I mean, we didn't have time to fully flesh out the phase one, two, three, the regulatory process. Um, I mean, this is such a rigorous process. It's actually very hard to get things oh. uh, available. And there's probably a lot of things that would do us benefit, like polio vaccine would never be licensed now. Yeah. Uh, because Why? of its, its profile. Because uh, if, if you used um, uh, live polio vaccine in the entire United States, when we had no longer any polio, mm -hmm. there were 10 cases of paralysis from the vaccine every year. So if you give 4 million kids the vaccine, 10 will get paralyzed. So that was not a good equation. Uh, there's no cases. And we're having 10 vaccine adverse events. But in the 1950s, when you had tens of thousands of people being paralyzed and going on iron lung, yep. and underneath that, you had 10 severe events from a vaccine. That was a good choice. So this is the kind of uh, ah. thinking, it's a little more sophisticated uh, to say, you know, to prevent 100,000 cases of paralysis will right. risk 10 adverse events and 4 million uh, kids. Doctor, doctor I, there, any of us who have seen the plethora, uh, the absolute tsunami of drug commercials know that you get 15 seconds of what this commercial, what this can do, and then you have 45 seconds of all the contraindications of, oh, my God, well, you might have this and you might have this. And this. these are all things that actually must have happened when they were going through that trial. Yeah, there, there's a thing called the package insert, which is the legally uh, <laughs> approved document from the FDA. And if you do it, if you do a trial, let's say you do a trial of a COVID vaccine of 50,000 people. And how many people do you think in that group over a six month period will have headache? Yeah. You know, if you, if you write down every day, did you have a headache today? At some point, probably 80% of people raise their hand. Uh, so uh, events, you know, headache, diarrhea, yep. achy, achy, tired, sure. this kind of thing happens in, in, you know, in everybody all the time. So I think sorting through what's attributable to the vaccine exactly. versus normal. Versus, well, and and, and, and we're, we're talking about the press because here in the, the communication and how things get spread virally uh, and, and how an idea whether it's malevolent, uh, d done from a malevolence or through ignorance or both, uh, it can it can actually be part of this the the edges, and I want to keep the eighty percent. I want to keep it in, in there because I I agree with you that that that's our opportunity to be able to make a difference. Yeah, and we're not saying there's there are not possible side effects from these things. That's why this oh, yeah. stuff takes billions of dollars, tens of thousands of people, and you know. Typically, historically, it's taken 25 years to get a vaccine from discovery to licensure. Right. So uh, we're not cavalier about safety. I think safety is number no. one on everybody's mind. But uh, I'm just saying COVID may be an opportunity 
to discuss more thoroughly with the public how science works, how medicine and medicine research works, uh, and allow the public to participate as they did in the era of polio and say, what do you want? What's your objective? Help us pay for it and we'll deliver it for you. And uh, help us have the discussion about benefits versus risk, you know, uh, rather than us telling you, you know, engage in a full conversation as a society. That'd be my dream outcome as one of the biggest collateral benefits here. Let's talk about how we want this to look like. If our scientific research community and of our regulatory framework and our manufacturing capacity, if it looked like just what we wanted for us, what would it look like? Say that and let's make it that way. Why can't we do that together? Dr. Crow, thank you for so much for giving me an opportunity to be able to have this second conversation with, and I look forward to continuing the conversation to see what you're learning with you and your team in the future. Thank you. Great. It's great to be with you, and thanks for your time. Good. This is a conversation with Dr. James Crow Jr., and we will see you next time. This episode of A Conversation With has been sponsored by in search of the new compassionate male. For more information, visit newcompassionatemale.com.